Well, you can pray for Pastor Pat and his family this morning. Uh, they are in uh, northern Iowa. Uh, Pat was given the opportunity to uh, preach the gospel today, as well as uh, at a church camp up there, as well as talk about the gospel and give wakeboarding seminars up in northern Iowa. And you can imagine when you bring the gospel and wakeboarding together with Pat, it's a winning combination. Um, Molly and the kids also got to go up on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday with him and pretty much had some free time as a family. So you can pray not only for their time of refreshment, but also for the gospel to be clearly presented and Pat to have a fruitful ministry. He will be back in the pulpit next Sunday. Well, we live in a culture in a world that cherishes individuality and freedom. As a general rule, we don't like having limitations placed on us. We don't like rules. I don't even like being told I have to only go 45 miles per hour on Interstate 680 out here on the way to church. I have a hard time keeping it at 45 miles an hour. And it's even harder when all the cars in front of me are pulling away and there's about five or six behind me pushing me down the road. I like to go as fast as I want to go. I don't like rules. I don't like being told no. Being told thou shalt not really rubs us the wrong way by and large and often just invites us to find a creative way around the rule. In modern society, even more so than in the past, we don't like people labeling things as right and wrong. Because in a world where everything is relative, we like to think there is no real right or wrong. Rather, right and wrong is just a way some people try to exert power over others and impose their will on them. It's a common objection against Christians. Christians are said to be narrow and bigoted, arrogant and divisive, because in a world where the only wrong is to be against or for something, we are guilty of the only wrong of being intolerant. Our individualism claims that what is true for you may not be true for me. It's a postmodern mindset. It's the world we live in. But into our world, just as into the world of the Israelites 3,400 years ago, steps God. God who is the Creator, who is almighty and all-powerful, who is a God of justice, whose character shows forth in the fact that He did not and does not today swiftly bring judgment upon us for our sin, judgment upon rebels, but rather He is the God whose character stands for right and against what is wrong. And He proclaims to His people these standards, these rules, these instructions. His holiness demands and His grace gives us these instructions so that we might have a fruitful relationship with Him. We come to the Ten Commandments this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Four points in the outline of Exodus 19 and 20. Point number one, God's law is given to a people redeemed by grace. That's Exodus chapters 3 to 18. It's what we've been looking at through this summer as we've looked at the book of Exodus. 
Point number two is God's covenant with his people is established in Exodus chapter 19. Point number three, humanity's responsibility to God and others. Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 to 17 and humanity's relationship with God requires a mediator, Exodus 20, verses 18 to 20. What we will see this morning as we look at the Ten Commandments is how the law revealed by the Ten Commandments, the law reveals our sin and points us to Christ. Point number one, God's law is given to a people redeemed by grace. The story of Exodus, the book of Exodus, is set up by the fact that Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob are called by God to be a special people to him. His chosen people who are called to go to a new land. In this new land, God called Abraham and his descendants to be his chosen people by means of a covenant, by an agreement, an agreement with Abraham. It said what God would do. It was a unilateral covenant. Independent of what Abraham would do, God said he would do this. God said he would bless Abraham. In Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God said he would give Abraham a land, a promised land. God would give him many descendants and grow him into a nation. Well, God has grown Abraham's descendants into a nation in Egypt. God is bringing them out of Egypt to this land. But the most important and the most significant promise of all that God gave to Abraham was the promise that through Abraham, all the families, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now they stayed in this land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Until famine came. And then God preserved them. Graciously preserved them by sending them to Egypt. And over the next 400 years, they flourished and grew into a great people under the harsh slavery of the Egyptians. Then God raised up Moses. A Hebrew child brought up in the royal court of Pharaoh... But as an adult, Moses kills an Egyptian man who is abusing one of his Hebrew brethren. And Moses flees Egypt and lives most of his adult life as a shepherd in the wilderness. Then in the third chapter of Exodus, God heard the cries of his people in Egypt and spoke to Moses. Now at this point, Moses is an old man. He's 80 years of age. And he's not looking for a trip back to Egypt. God speaks to Moses from a burning bush on the side of a mountain. And Moses was the reluctant servant as he said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God replied, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on the mountain. In the months after his return to Egypt, Moses and the Israelites saw the Lord graciously deliver his people from death. First on the night of Passover, by placing blood on the doorposts 
and then by parting the Red Sea in the face of the charging Egyptian army and bringing his people safely through to the other side. It was a powerful demonstration of God's deliverance of his chosen people, an awesome display of his power, of his protection and his provision for them. Then in chapter 16 and 17 of Exodus, the people complain and grumble against Moses for the lack of food and meat, calling into question the faithfulness of God to his people. After all he's done, after his deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt, they still do not trust him. Well, the question of who to trust is powerfully answered by God. He graciously provides bread and quail from heaven to meet the needs of his chosen nation. God provided bread each morning and meat every evening. They again tested God and quarreled with him, this time over water. The Lord responded in grace, taking upon himself the judgment they deserved as he allowed Moses to strike the rock to bring forth water, when in fact the Israelites deserved the strike of God in judgment for their unbelief. It's in this context of grace and salvation, in the realm of deliverance and mercy, that we come to the giving of God's law in Israel. The Scripture leaves no doubt that this law of God This other covenant, called the Mosaic Covenant, sometimes called the Old Covenant, was given to a people who as a nation had been chosen by God's grace and already redeemed by God's grace. There could be no question that this law, this Mosaic Covenant, is not a way of achieving salvation by works, a way of achieving deliverance or redemption. It is not salvation by keeping the law. God's people had already been chosen and redeemed as a people, as a nation, as they came to the mountain. At the heart of this Mosaic Covenant, which is revealed primarily in the rest of the book of Exodus and Leviticus and repeated in the the book of Deuteronomy, is the Ten Commandments. And we will see this morning how Israel illustrates the basic problem of the whole human race by looking at God's law. We will see how the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ is ultimately intertwined with God's law. We will see how the law reveals our sin and points us to Christ. How the Ten Commandments show our true nature as sinners and points us to the good news of the gospel of Christ. That brings us to point number two. God's covenant with his people is established. Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. Follow along with me as I read. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. We've now got to the mountain. The same mountain where God told Moses from the burning bush he would bring them to. And let's notice now verses 3 to 6. Notice God's purpose in redeeming Israel from slavery in Egypt. Verse 3, 
while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, in other words, on the basis of your redemption and deliverance from the Egyptians, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And in verse 8, the people agree to this covenant with God. God is telling His people here that He loves them. And He has brought them to Himself that they might live before Him as a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They are chosen and saved to represent Him among all the nations of the earth. And while the law tells them how they are to conduct themselves, it also tells them what kind of God has redeemed them. The keeping of God's law would point the nations of all the earth to Israel's relationship with the living and true God, whose character is revealed in and is consistent with the Ten Commandments, with God's law. Israel was to be God's representative to the world. All the world would be blessed by looking at Israel and seeing how they, in keeping God's commandments, in keeping the Mosaic Covenant, would be a blessing to other nations. That brings us now to the Ten Commandments themselves. As I mentioned, they are a summary of the law of God. Exodus chapter 20. This summary is to enable the new nation of redeemed people to know what kind of existence is consistent with the unique relationship they have with God. This law defines how they are to represent Him to the world. Point three, humanity's responsibility to God and to others. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17. The Ten Commandments are given in two parts. The first four commands tell the people how they are to relate to God. The second half is comprised of the last six commandments, and they tell the people how to relate to one another. The first four commands are found in verses 1 to 11, how God's people are to relate to Him. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless 
who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. These first four commandments are about the exclusiveness of God. He is the God who brought you out of slavery, yes. But He is also the God who made everything. And He brings every blessing to your lives. He is different than anything or anyone else. The first commandment recognizes that. It recognizes that there is only one God. Not like the culture that the Israelites were surrounded with, who had many, many hundreds and hundreds of gods for everything, including the sun. God is an exclusive God. The second commandment, verses 4 to 6, point to the transcendence of God. He is not like us. There is a distinction between the Creator and every created thing. And God can't be controlled. He can't be manipulated. You can't make an image of Him because He is not like you. So don't even try to represent Him in that way. Because He is so different from us. To do so would certainly mar our image of who He is. The third commandment, verse 7, emphasizes the importance of God. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. You see, a person's name in the Scripture is tied to the character and integrity of that person. So the character and integrity of God is associated with His name. The reason we are not to say things like, Oh God, or if you've ever hit your hand, your hand, your thumb with a hammer to say something like, Jesus. Is that it makes God's name common and every day. Matter of fact, if you ask someone to stop saying that, you know, if, I'd appreciate it if, if maybe you didn't say that for Jesus is my Savior. You're likely to get the response... I've gotten the response. Well, I didn't really mean anything by it. Isn't that the point? You really didn't mean anything by it when you pronounced the name of the one true God and the Savior? When you do that, you make Him common in every day, just like us. You bring Him down to our level. It's blasphemy. It's sin against him to do that. To make God common is to diminish and cheapen him. Profanity makes something almost meaningless. 
The fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath is in verses 8 to 11. It's telling us that God's right to reign over this earth extends even over time. Our time is not our own, God is saying. You owe me your time. You owe me a day, Israel. Give me your time. Just for me. Just for me. The pattern was set in creation, right? God created in six days. And on the seventh day, He rested. And so should Israel. Well, now we move on to the last six of the commandments, where human responsibility to others is defined by God. Verses 12 to 17 reveals how we are to treat other people, how we are to conduct ourselves in society. This is the second half or the second table of the law of God of the Ten Commandments. Matter of fact, they're based on the first four. Because of the first four commandments, because of our view of God, because of who He is, and because He has made us human beings in the image of God, now we are to act in a certain way towards one another. These last six are based on the first four. You see, if our thoughts about God and our relationship with Him is right, our thoughts about others and our relationships with them will be right as well. Verse 12 of Exodus 20. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And we're very familiar with those commands. In many ways, they're the basis for the laws of our society. But these Ten Commandments function as the kernel of the whole of the Mosaic Covenant. They are a summary of the over 600 commandments given in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. These are the things that are to characterize the people of God. Let's move on to point number four. Humanity's relationship with God requires a mediator. Verses 18 to 21. Here we will see the people tremble with fear. They are petrified. They are facing their own inadequacy before a holy and almighty God and it causes them to be reluctant and afraid to approach Him. Verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. God was on the mountain. This is not a volcanic eruption, all right? This is God. 
and the earth is shaking and the thunder is crashing and the trumpets are blazing. The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. They are pleading with Moses to be their go-between. Moses, you go hear what God has to say and come back and tell us more. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be upon you, that you may not sin. God wants them to have a healthy fear of Him. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The people were so frightened, they asked God that He not directly speak to them, but they called for Moses to step forward as their mediator, as their representative before God, foreshadowing the coming of the ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ. So these commandments that are so familiar to us, many of us memorize them as young people. These commandments are given to Israel in the book of Exodus, but how do they relate to us? What's their significance for us today as Christians Well, interestingly, nowhere in any of the New Testament letters, in any of the epistles, are the Ten Commandments grouped together and explained. Now, nine of the ten individual commandments are mentioned, but never as a group are they brought together. The only exception that isn't mentioned in the New Testament is the commandment to keep the Sabbath. I propose to you this morning that These commandments can only relate to us as Christians today in the context of our unity with Jesus Christ. Our oneness with Christ is the basis of our understanding. And they can never relate to us apart from this fact. The idea that the Ten Commandments can somehow relate to Christians apart from Christ is to say the least a denial of who we are in Christ. Christ is everything to us. Everything takes on meaning in Christ. Jesus told those with Him on the Emmaus Road that the Scriptures speak of Him. Well, how do these Scriptures speak of Christ? How do these commandments tell us about Christ? It was Christ who said in quoting the law on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Oh. Jesus says we're to keep the commandments perfectly. We're to be holy as God is holy. In saying this, Jesus is calling us to conformity to the character of God. 
The law is a good thing. The Ten Commandments are a good thing. They are a holy thing. They represent the character of God. And Jesus is saying, we must conform to holiness. We must be pure. We must be perfect. But interestingly, as we approach this passage in Exodus 20 and then through chapter 24, the focus is on the law and keeping the law. But once we get to Exodus 25 and then the following passages, the focus changes to offerings and sacrifices and a temple and priests. This is a paradox, isn't it? I mean, it's clear that God requires strict and perfect obedience, but at the same time, God is providing offerings and sacrifices, particularly in the blood sacrifices of animals. God is providing provision for the sins of the people. God knows, even as He delivers the Ten Commandments through Moses, that they will fail, that they will sin. And God provides a temporary means for Israel to deal with the fact that they will fail to keep God's law. And as sinful human beings, Israel would fail repeatedly and grievously over the next years, decades, centuries. It begins just a few days later at Exodus 32 with the golden calf. It's only been days since the law has been given to them from Moses and they're already building a false image and worshiping it as the true God in direct defiance of the second commandment. The depressing truth is that Israel's history will be characterized by idolatry, by faithlessness, and by law-breaking. God gives us almost 1,500 years of it before the fullness of time comes and Christ comes on the scene. It was Christ who quoted from the law when asked by a Jewish religious leader in Matthew chapter 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's Jesus quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. But Jesus wasn't done. He says, This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Guess where that comes from? From the law. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Jesus says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Notice, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the first four commandments of the ten, isn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the last six commandments of the ten. Jesus is putting before this man this 
Jewish leader who's asking him this question, he's saying, all you need to do is keep the law. Now let me ask you, could he do it? No, he couldn't do it. Can you do it? You can't do it. Can I do it? I can't do it. Pastor Pat can't do it. A day hasn't gone by in my life where every moment of every day, every hour, every minute, I have loved the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Never have I done it. Abraham didn't do it. He was a grievous sinner. He sent his wife off as a part of the king's harem because he didn't want to face the music if they found out this beautiful woman was his wife. Moses didn't do it. We'll find out later Moses will strike the rock in anger when God didn't tell him to and God won't even let Moses go into the promised land because of his sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law reveals our sinfulness. If God required of Israel that she should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your mind, as they were commanded to be holy, even as God is holy, God also knew that Israel would never achieve that standard. It is the reality of that situation that we have in Exodus. This idea of a loving God takes on brand new significance when we realize God's standard is perfection But God graciously makes provision through His grace for our sin. The significance of the Ten Commandments for us as a symbol of all of God's law is that the law is fulfilled by Christ. Speaking to us as Christians, the writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10 how our standing as God's people this side of the cross compares with the view of the Israelites. And in so doing, he points to the most significant aspect of the law for us as believers. He says, the law was a shadow of the good things to come. For what the law could not achieve, Jesus Christ has achieved for us. We are assured that God remembers our sin no more because all the requirements of the law are met in Jesus. All of them. He kept the law perfectly. He obeyed the commandments without fail. Jesus, who is the exact imprint of the nature of God and in whom the fullness of God dwells, is the Israelite upon whose heart the law of God is perfectly written. The character of God is written on the heart of the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is the good news. This is the good news of the gospel, that this Christ, this last Adam, this true Israel, makes for us a way to God by keeping the law for us. Also in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus tells us he did not come to destroy or abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The Apostle Paul tells us that Christ is the end of the law in Romans 10. It is Christ who reveals what Mount Sinai is all about. 
In the Gospels, Jesus consistently condemns the self-righteous. He condemns those who think they can somehow be acceptable before God by keeping the law. Those who think God was pleased with them because of their works or by thinking somehow they are a good enough person that God will accept them. The fact is, the matter is, they are not. That we are all sinners. And we shall fall short of His standards, of His glory, of His law, of His commandment. I am not a good person. You are not a good person. The Apostle Paul calls himself a wretched sinner. We are not righteous. We are not holy. We are not perfect. Only Jesus is. Only Jesus is. Jesus has come to fulfill all righteousness for us. Jesus not only fulfills all the law in His own sinless life, but He is pleased to have our law-breaking imputed to Him, credited to Him, so that He bears the curse of the law for us. He takes my sin upon Him. And by faith, we receive from Him the gift of Jesus' law-keeping, which He perfectly achieved for us on our behalf so that He bears the curse of the law for us. What's the Gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Christ died for us. Christ died on our behalf. Not only can we plead the forgiveness of sins because they were born for us by Jesus on the cross, but we have as a gift His perfect righteousness that He earned, that He exercised in His life. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, get that? Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life, by His righteous life, by His law-keeping, by His earning righteousness for us. You see, no longer is it Moses on Sinai that is the beacon or guide for us. Rather, it is Christ on Calvary. One final point. When the Apostle Paul tells Christians... In Romans 6, you are not under law, but under grace. He is not calling us to a lawless and sin-filled life as believers. Rather, because of Christ, we are no longer to be slaves to sin and are now slaves to righteousness. Remember, God's law is good. The Ten Commandments are good. They reflect God's holiness. We should strive to live our lives in accordance with them. 
Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Let's finish here. Romans 8, verse 1. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is encouraging us as believers in Christ to walk. That is, to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel in light of the fact that Christ has done what the law could not do. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, save us from ourselves. Father, we are such a people. Let us learn the lessons of the Israelites. Let us not repeat their mistakes, Father, in trying to somehow think that the way we live our life will earn righteousness for us, will make us acceptable before You. For, Father, we are wretched sinners in need of Jesus Christ. In the words of the song, Father, we need You. We marvel at the salvation that You have provided. How Your justice is met. How the judgment that we deserve, the death, the penalty we deserve for our sins was taken by Christ. But not only that, You have given us the righteousness of Christ. You have imputed to us Christ's righteousness that He earned by His law-keeping here on this earth. For He is the one who has the law of God written on His heart. He fulfills the law for us. Let us marvel at this truth, Father. Let us absorb it. Let it sink deep into our hearts. And then out of thankfulness and out of joy and out of love for you, out of love for Christ, we might serve you and love you. And in so doing, love others. We pray, Lord, that the love of Christ would shine forth from each of us individually, but even more, Father, from us as your church here in Omaha, We pray, Lord, we would have a heart for you, not a heart for your law, not a heart for keeping the rules, but a heart for a relationship with God through Christ. In his name we pray, amen.